God, what a gift it is uh, to be reminded that you invite us into uh, your family, into ministry, into life together, no matter how weird we are, no matter how inadequate we may feel. Um, I pray that your word today um, would encourage us, would empower us, um, would give us assurance that we are all we need to be in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, is this a little loud? I feel like it's a little loud. Excuse no. me. Okay. Okay. All right, all right. Um, when I decided to go to seminary, I had not read really any theology, any uh, real biblical scholarship. Um, I didn't know who the modern-day theologians were or anything like that. I just asked my professors, my religion professors at Concordia, where I should apply, and they said I should apply to Duke because that was a good school, and I really liked Duke basketball growing up, so when I got in, it was an easy decision. Um, but when I went, I had no idea who my professors would be. I had no idea, like I'd never read any of their books. Um, Mitch isn't here right now, but Mitch, on the other hand, he actually knew what he was doing when he went to seminary. He had actually read some of the, our professors. Um, but quickly I learned that, that there was one name that was virtually synonymous with Duke Divinity School. You couldn't bring up Duke without this name coming up. And that name was Stanley Hauerwas. Anytime I told someone where I was going to go to school, if they had any background in theology and religious studies, they would go, ah, Stanley Hauerwas. Well, unfortunately, Stanley Hauerwas retired the year before I went to Duke. Um, but he was Professor Emeritus, so he, was still, he could still be seen shuffling around the halls, usually with one too many buttons unbuttoned on his shirt and this gold chain hanging on his neck, which was kind of funny. But he, would be, he was around, but I never took any classes uh, with Hauerwas. And to be honest, I haven't really read very much of Hauerwas' work. But I know that he has a reputation of telling it like it is, of being fairly blunt, and of swearing a lot while he does that. And one of the things that set Hauerwas apart, aside from uh, his theology, is that he has a kind of interesting voice. It's kind of nasally and high-pitched. It's not really what you'd expect. And so a little while ago, I was just, I don't even know what I was talking about, but I mentioned offhandedly how Hauerwas had this kind of funny voice. And Bree said that she'd never heard it. So I got on YouTube just to find an example of Stanley Hauerwas's unique voice. Uh, and the first thing I clicked on was the first thing that came up, and it said, Stanley Hauerwas interview, are you a Christian? And it turns out that if you click on an interview with Stanley Hauerwas or any good theologian or any good public thinker, you're probably going to get more out of it than just an example of what their voice sounds like. You're probably going to hear something worthwhile. So I clicked on this video just to hear his voice, and what I heard instead was this. First he said, I'm not at all sure I'm right in identifying myself as a Christian. And I have to admit that right then my eyes kind of rolled back because I'm really over the whole like, oh, I'm not a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. Like, this kind of elitist, like, oh, I'm not a sheep, I follow Jesus. Um, so I was like, great. I thought Hauerwas was this great theologian. He's just so cliche. But, of course, 
As I should have known, he said the opposite of what I thought he would say. He said, I'm not at all sure I'm right in identifying myself as a Christian because I have such a high regard for what it means to be a Christian. What is he talking about? What does it mean to be a Christian? Another way of saying that is, what does it mean to be baptized? Because baptism is the right by which we identify ourselves as Christians. A common way of thinking of baptism, especially in churches like ours, Baptist-type churches, is to say that it is an outward expression of an inward decision or an inward grace or an inward change. The point being that we don't somehow earn God's love by going through this thing called baptism, but in baptism we recognize that God already loves us and we accept that. That God has already extended God's grace to us and in baptism we accept that grace. So in other words, when we look at Jesus' baptism this morning, we believe that God had already called Jesus beloved. That God had already told Jesus, or said to himself of Jesus, uh, to God's self, excuse me, um, that God was well pleased with Jesus. But in baptism, Jesus accepted that identity. And so also for us, God has extended an invitation to become children of God, and in baptism we accept that invitation. We don't earn it, we just receive it. Just last week, we read from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. Baptism is the symbol by which we receive Christ. But there's another dimension to baptism as well. In his own baptism, Jesus accepts his identity as the Son of God, and he also accepts God's call on his life. He accepts his ministry. He submits, and I know we don't like that word submits very much, but that's what he does. He submits to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, immediately after he is baptized, the Spirit propels him into the wilderness to be tempted. Right from the get-go, the Spirit leads after Jesus' baptism. So there's both kind of this acceptance and a commissioning in baptism. It's a receiving and a giving. We receive God's grace, which we can do nothing to earn, and we give ourselves as ambassadors of that grace. 2 Corinthians 5 says that uh, through Christ, God has reconciled us to God, and that we are then given that ministry of reconciliation. Baptism is an end in the sense that we find our home in God, but it's a beginning in the sense that our lives are put on a new trajectory. Strangely enough, finding our home in God propels us out into the wilderness, into the world that maybe we thought we were going to escape. So I think that a sermon on baptism could focus on the receiving part or the giving part, the accepting or the commissioning, or it could probably go a million other ways. But today I would like to focus on the commissioning part. I would like to explore Stanley Hauerwas' comment about the high regard for what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be baptized? Obviously, it's impossible to answer this question in a single sermon. It really takes us a lifetime to figure out what our own baptism means. But I think each of our readings this morning 
help us answer that question. So I'd like to go through those three readings. First, I'd like us to look at Isaiah, um, which if you want, you can open your Bibles, but you don't have to. Um, And in Isaiah, there's kind of this passage from Isaiah that we heard. There's two sections. The first section uh, is about this character that's been called the suffering servant. And the suffering servant appears throughout Isaiah. And since the early days, the church has interpreted this suffering servant as a prophecy about Jesus, that Jesus fulfills the kind of role of this suffering servant. And the second part of this passage from Isaiah is then turned towards the people of God and what is required of them. And originally, these words were for Israel, but we believe that because of Jesus, we also have become children of God, and so these words to Israel pertain to us as well. And these verses from Isaiah are all about justice. The suffering servant, Christ, will bring forth justice to the nations. He will establish justice in the earth, Isaiah says. And he says, Isaiah goes on to say that the people of God are called to be a covenant people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And this has been the case since the very early days when God first called Abraham and told Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the nations. From the very beginning, Israel was called to be a source of justice and liberation, not just for themselves, but for the whole world. They were called to be a light to the nations, and that is not meant in a strictly spiritual sense. So to be a Christian is to do the work of justice. It's to fight against unjust systems. It means setting prisoners free. Those imprisoned by poverty and debt, those imprisoned by the effects of racism and sexism and all the other isms, those imprisoned by abuse, those imprisoned by mental and physical health issues, and also those imprisoned by prisons. Living in the incarceration nation, we cannot forget that. The work of Christ is the work of liberation and justice. But this is a pretty tall order. To establish justice in the earth, how does Grant Park Church do that? How do we extend justice to the ends of the earth? I would like to point out verses two and four, two, two through four from our reading in Isaiah. They say, He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he establishes justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his teaching. The work of Jesus is the work of justice, but it requires patience and perseverance. It's not flashy, it's slow, and it's hard, and it takes time. When we think of working for justice, at least when I think of working for justice, I usually think of protests and sit-ins and megaphones. And there is definitely a place for that. But often those things just bring our attention to the issue. But the real work takes a long time. It takes commitment and determination even when our passion for whatever it is we're working towards, in the words of Isaiah, becomes a dimly burning wick. So how do we, Grant Park Church, establish justice in the earth? 
It might start by making our space a welcoming and safe place to marginalized communities, especially within the church, like the LGBTQIA plus community, like sex workers. How do we be a light to the nations? Maybe it looks like collecting toys and coats and gifts for children and family who need them. How do we live as covenant people? I think it looks like prioritizing our kids and volunteering to lead Sunday school two weeks at a time so that they know that they are the beloved children of God. We want them to know how God loves them so that maybe one day they will accept that in their own baptism. I have to admit that last week, when all this stuff with Iran was going on, and I know it still is, but it was really like scary last week, I just like did not want to talk about it. I just felt overwhelmed. I felt like we did a lot this last December, and what am I really going to say to you about, about bombings and the Middle East? I just like didn't, I didn't want to talk about it really. And it's so hard in those moments to turn inward and make it just about us. Um, but that's not what it means to be the people of God. We are called to be a light. We're called to be a blessing to the world. And that is what we're doing. Even though it seems small, even though volunteering to teach our kids doesn't seem like it has much to do with Iran or something like that, we are being faithful with what we've been given here in our little corner of the world. So to be Christians, to be baptized, means to do the slow, hard, often unrecognized work of justice and to do it faithfully. Now I'd like to turn to Acts. In the context of this passage from Acts, it is one of the most important passages in the New Testament for sure. For us Christians, we would say in the whole Bible. Because up until this point, the disciples of Jesus and those who had followed him still thought that Christianity was only for Jewish people. So the only way that you could become a Christian was to go through, was to um, become part of the Jewish religion and adopt Jewish practices. And so what's happened up to this point is that God has told Peter to go to this Gentile's house, and this Gentile's name is Cornelius. And Peter, as a good Jew, isn't even supposed to go into his house because he's a Gentile. But Peter follows the leading of the Holy Spirit, and he goes into this house. And he's still a little shell-shocked, and he's not sure what he's supposed to do there, why God has called him to these people who he thinks have nothing to do with God and who, if he's really honest, thinks God has nothing to do with either. Like, why does God want him there? And when he shows up, it's not just like a few people. A great assembly has uh, congregated to hear from him. And Cornelius sits him down, and I imagine it's kind of like this maybe, but with even more people, and Peter's never seen any of them. And it gets quiet, and Cornelius says, all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. In other words, he gets gets quiet and he goes, go. And he steps back, and Peter is standing in front of these strangers, these people he has nothing to do with, has nothing in common with, maybe people who speak another language or have accents or dress differently, maybe people that seem weird. So what does Peter do? 
Does he downplay it? Does he say, you know, it's really kind of a Jewish thing. I don't think y'all really get it. Does he kind of like get embarrassed because the story is, seems a little ridiculous? Does he get embarrassed to say that, well, God became an ordinary human, but then he died a violent death like criminals die when he's only like 33. And, um, but it's okay because he rose from the dead. But he's not here now. I mean, he rose from the dead, but now he ascended to heaven. He's with God. But it's okay because the Holy Spirit's here, um, which is also God. Not a different God. It's the same God, but it's also different than Jesus. Like, if you're like me, sometimes just summarizing what we believe feels a little bit like you want to water it down a little bit. But Peter doesn't water it down. He says what he has seen and experienced and what he believes. He tells the truth, and unlike Emily Dickinson, he does not tell it slant. He tells it straight. And guess what happens? It changes the life of everyone who hears him. These Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit and are baptized because they too are beloved children of God. And it's impossible for us to overstate the importance of the story because it's the reason that we're here, those of us who are Gentiles. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Peter speaking boldly what he believes. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that we say that we're Christians. It means that we actually share our faith with others and don't get ashamed about it. In the words of 1 Peter 3, it means we're always ready to give an explanation for the hope that is in us. In many places in the United States, that's probably the easy part. In many parts of the United States, the justice part is probably a little bit harder, but just saying you're a Christian is easy. But I guess that it's the opposite for many of us at Grant Park Church. We're a pretty socially active church, not just as a church, but individually. I know many of us work in areas and have friends where it's not really very popular to say that you're a Christian. People, when we, when we say we're Christians, think of you know, the person with the megaphone and the sign that says who God hates. And if you feel that way, it's not just you. I realize that um, sometimes I go, when I go climbing by myself, and it's like a slow part of the day, and I know my friends aren't going to be there, I take a book with me, because you've got to take a break in between trying these routes. And so I sit and read a book sometimes. But it's often a theology book. And I've found, I realized that subconsciously, I always turn the face of the book down. Because I don't want anyone to see that I'm like one of those Christians reading that book. Especially when it's like a systematic theology that says doctrine on it. Like, I don't want people to think. Um, And another thing that happens is I often like don't want to tell people I'm a pastor in this city. Or at least until they get to know me. It's like, Wait, find out how that I'm cool, and then I'll tell you that I'm a pastor. But like, don't, don't ask me what I do straight up, please, especially if you're some kind of active, like activist, social justice-y person, because um, I don't want that awkward. Uh, oh, okay. Um, but that is like not okay that that's my response. I should not be ashamed or afraid, try to downplay who I am. As baptized Christians, we are called to proudly claim our identity in Christ. We're called to tell people about Jesus, not because we want to shove our religion down their throats, because we actually believe it's good news. 
If not, we are very much wasting our time here on Sundays. We really believe that God has called all people beloved and has invited them into God's family. There's a great assembly of people like the ones who gathered at Cornelius' house who need to hear the message that we have, who need to know that their lives matter, that God loves them, that they aren't too bad, too broken, too lost, too anything to be called children of God. The world needs the good news of Jesus, and we can't afford to be people who hide the light that we have under a basket. What do we sing with our kids just now and every Sunday? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. We have to let our light shine. So, it might sound redundant, but um, to be Christian means to be a Christian. And lastly, so we've got Isaiah, justice. We've got Acts, I don't know, proclamation, claiming our faith, boldly. And lastly, we turn to our gospel reading from Matthew 3. But I don't want to focus on Jesus. I want to focus on John. John is baptizing, and Jesus comes up to him and says, I need you to baptize me. And understandably, John says, no way. I am not good enough to baptize you. You need to baptize me. I'm not worthy. But Jesus tells him to do it. Because John has a role and a responsibility, and Jesus needs him to fill his role and his responsibility. To be the hands and feet of Christ, as we like to say, to take on the responsibility of being a light to the nations, to minister to broken people who have experienced often more than we will ever experience ourselves, of course we are going to feel inadequate. Since day one, I have felt inadequate staying in front of all of you. I feel inadequate right now. I mean, what do I have to say to those of you who are twice as old as me? Or those of you who have more education than me? Or those of you who have experienced more trauma and more hardship in your lives than I will ever? How am I supposed to comfort you? How am I supposed to minister to those of you who have more experience in ministry than I do? As John said to Jesus, you should baptize me. I often want to say to you, you should preach to me. You should minister to me. And I do say that sometimes. And you all do minister and preach to me sometimes. But it's important that I step into this role that God has given me, right? And just as a side note, please don't in the response time try and affirm that I am adequate or something. I'm not up here trying to like, hey, I'm feeling a little down. Could you all like throw me a bone? Um, don't, don't do that. I'm only trying to say that I feel inadequate, as I'm sure you do as well. When it comes to matters of faith, you might feel inadequate. You might feel like you're not devout enough or you don't know enough or you don't have enough experience in church. We all feel like that. But one of the things that we stress here at Grant Park is that in the words of Peter, God shows no partiality. The work of Jesus is not reserved for the ordained or the ultra-holy or the academics. It's for all of us, equally. You are worthy of the ministry that God has called you to, and God has called you to a ministry. 
And because God has called you to that ministry, God has promised to be with you in that ministry. Like John, you might say, no, no, not me. But Jesus just smiles and says, yes, you. Because you are God's beloved. Because you are a child of God. Because in you, God is well-pleased. And because that's what it means to be a Christian. Amen.